0: at this time. Just a couple of real quick announcements. Number one, we have a baptism next Sunday, and if you would like to be a part of that uh, baptism, we would encourage you get the word to us, and uh, that meaning the church office, you can call, you can see me after church, see one of the elders, and uh, we would be glad to talk with you about being a part of that baptism service that will take place next Sunday. Number two, we have a birth to celebrate. Jacqueline Katz uh, had a little one. Eliza, I lost the uh, note that I had that had the vital statistics. Surely one of the women over here will know. Anybody? Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to have a bass that size, huh? Sweet. All right, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Acts chapter 17. As we come to this text, we see Paul sharing the gospel with people who share very little in the way of common beliefs. And you know, more and more, we're finding that today. While Europe is usually about 40 years ahead of us, and many of the things that aren't good, uh, we're, we're catching up when it comes to living in a secular, humanistic society. Our education system stresses the idea that humanism and secularism is the answer to all of our questions, philosophical and spiritual. And really, that's what Paul encounters as he comes to Athens, as it's recorded by Luke in the text that we're looking into this morning. And it raises a question. How do we share Christ with someone who shares very little in the way of our beliefs? In my lifetime, I've seen a huge transitional shift. I grew up in the Bible Belt in West Virginia. And you could generally share the gospel with somebody... And you had a shared context that the Bible's the word of God, that God exists, that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And people would at least give lip service to those ideas. But as our culture has shifted and changed, I would submit to you I could go to that same area and it would be radically different today, just 40 years later. A lot has changed. So we have to get a grasp on how to share Christ with those who may not see the Bible as the word of God, who may not see Christ as anything but a historical figure. We need to really come to terms with sharing the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's rejected by so many. And that's what we find as we come to Acts chapter 16. Now, as we come to this text, we first want to see the importance of evangelism, and we want to see that we evangelize by sharing the truth about Jesus and his resurrection. Now, somebody will quickly say, now, pastor, didn't you just say that a lot of people don't believe in Jesus or his resurrection? And let me share this, as Paul shares in Athens, they didn't believe either. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If people are not exposed to the truth of who Jesus is, then they'll never come to the place to where they have the opportunity to believe. And let me share this with you. Often when we share Christ in the initial stages with somebody who doesn't accept who Jesus is or the resurrection, there will be immediate rejection. But here's the beauty of God's Word. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and works on people's hearts. And if we don't share the Word of God, they won't have the opportunity to consider the things of God. So it's incumbent on us to take that responsibility on. We need to go and we need to share the gospel. Now look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Paul was run out of Berea and Thessalonica. So he goes several miles away to Athens. And when he goes to Athens, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. So it says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now a little background on Athens. Athens was a place that was a center of Philosophical thought, education. It was a place where the Greek and Roman gods were paraded on display by idols and temples. It was a place that was very, very secular or pagan in its approach to things. And this is where Paul winds up. What we find is as he's walking through Athens, as he's interacting with the populace, he's grieved. By what he sees. Look carefully at that 16th verse, and it says While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens viewed their idols as something that adorned the city. Paul looked at them and he saw them as something that was an abomination to the one true God. Isn't it interesting how the same items can be venerated by some and vilified by others? And this is what Paul was doing. He looked at them, and it brought about a horrible feeling as he looked upon them. This word troubled that we find here in the NIV, it's, or distressed, it's, it's a word that's translated in various ways. For instance, it's translated provoked in the New American Standard Bible. It's translated as grieved and roused to anger in the Amplified Bible. And it's the idea that this brought about an emotional, intellectual, spiritual response on the part of the Apostle Paul. And you know, that's something that I can get a flavor for. Paul and I went to India. And as we got off the plane in New Delhi... When you walked from one concourse to the other, the smell of incense was in the air. And so I went with my friend, Omega, and I said, Omega, man, incense, I mean, it's it's hard to even breathe. What is that? And he said, these were incense that are offered in the Hindu temples. Later the next day, when we flew from New Delhi to Hyderabad, what we found was temple after temple after temple on every street corner dedicated to Hindu gods. And right in the middle of a lake was an idol to one of the Hindu gods that people would take a boat to go out to, kneel before this god, and worship this god, or they would stay around the perimeter of the lake worshiping that god. And I remember that feeling as I witnessed it for myself of sadness, profound sadness. But also of anger that there would be this many people deluded by the idolatry that's presented to them from birth. It was a sad and memorable feeling. And that's what Paul experienced as he was there in Athens. He could see idol after idol, people offering sacrifices to them, and Paul recognized that these things are an abomination to God, and therefore they were an abomination to Him. You see, idol worship isn't something that's benign. It's serious, because in offering sacrifices to these idols, In reality, they're offering the sacrifices to the demons who are behind the idols. In 1 Corinthians, Paul brings this out. When he's talking to the Corinthians about the idolatry that was all around them, he said, do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So as Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, he's saying, look, this idolatry, it's a demonic deception. These people who fall prey to these teachings are people who are buying into doctrines that are taught by demons. And they do that to deceive, to misdirect, to pull people away from God. So Paul is there in Athens, and he sees what's going on, and he is burdened for the populace. And then we come to verse 17, and it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, there are two approaches that Paul takes in sharing the gospel. First, he goes to those who would share some commonality with him, the Jews. He was also going in obedience because, as Paul writes, the gospel goes to the Jew first, then also to the Gentile. So Paul was following that roadmap that God had established with him and he goes to the synagogue and there he finds people who accept the word of God and he had a bridge. He could take Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, show how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and he had a reference, a starting place with them as he shared the gospel. Many of them came to Christ. But then Paul took another approach. Not only did he camp out in the place that he would feel most comfortable with, and that is the synagogue. Remember, Paul was raised as a Jewish man. He moves outside his comfort zone, and he rubs elbows with people in the marketplace. Now, I want you to think about what this means. The marketplace would have been a pagan venture. Idol vendors everywhere. Ham sandwiches offered at every stand. To a Jewish boy, he would have looked at that and he would have found that offensive. In his youth, he would have looked at this and he would have said, this is an abomination. I will become unclean if I even walk through the marketplace. But what did he do? He stepped outside his comfort zone and he went to them to share the gospel. And I think there's a message here for us as believers. We find it easier to share the gospel with people who have some sort of context, some sort of commonality with us. We'll share the gospel with them. But do we make an effort to step outside our comfort zone and share the gospel with people that we share nothing in common with? It is so easy for us to avoid them. They make us uncomfortable. They say words that we would prefer not to use. They talk about subjects that we would prefer not to discuss. They have ideas that are foreign to our value system. So we look at them and we say, this is just really uncomfortable. I don't like talking to them, so I'll avoid them and I'll stay away. And that's what many Christians do. We kind of preach to the choir. We'll talk to one another about God and his faithfulness. But when it comes to talking to people who are outside those parameters, we're scared. We're uncomfortable. And we'd rather be comfortable. Paul went to the marketplace. He went to where they were congregating, to where they were. The people that he looked at and he saw the idols that they had made and he saw them bowing down to these idols, he didn't avoid them. He went to them and he shared the gospel. And you know, that's what we need to be willing to do as well. We need to be willing to step outside where we are comfortable and go and share with those who need to hear the truth of God. He intentionally went to the marketplace, knowing what it would mean, knowing the challenge that it would be to him to share the gospel, he went anyway, and he shared the gospel faithfully. And there's a challenge for us in this as well to do the same. Now, as we move through the text, we come to the part of the passage where Paul expresses the truth about Jesus and his bodily resurrection. Look at verse 18. Within the marketplace, rather an interesting conglomeration of people. You have the tradesmen, you have the merchants, but then milling around the marketplace were also groups of philosophers. The 18th verse says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, when we come to this part of the text, we have to understand the groups that Paul is talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics, so let's talk about them for a moment. The Epicureans were the secular humanists of their day. They saw the gods as uninvolved and therefore irrelevant if they existed at all. They believed that once we die, we die, there's nothing after, and therefore they believed that we should pursue pleasure and try and get as much out of this one go-round that you can get before you die, because once you die, that's it. Does that sound familiar? How many people today see God as irrelevant if he exists at all? The agnostic is really what we find here with the Stoic. They are the secular humanists who say, yeah, the gods may exist or he may not exist, but it really doesn't matter because they're uninvolved, even if they do. You just live and die like a dog so avoid pain, pursue pleasure. That's what life is all about. And I would submit to you that many of your neighbors, your family members, coworkers, subscribe to this same system of thought, if not in words, then certainly in lifestyle. They live in this way. Paul had to address these people as he talked about Jesus. Then there's the Stoic. The Stoic viewed the world and their gods as involved, even to the point of being fatalists. For the Stoics, they believed that the gods had foreordained everything, and that it really didn't matter what we did, that the gods had planned it out Anyway, so live your life in light of that truth, because nothing you do really matters. Now, you should try to appease these gods as best you can by following ethics, by living, and we use this term, stoically, in other words, living in such a way that you don't honk off the gods, you know, but understanding that even when you do, that was foreordained and foreplanned anyway. So the Stoics really wrestled with this, and they believed that you could... Come to know the gods by reason. That if your logic and your reason were profound and deep enough, then you could enter into a relationship with the gods by virtue of that interaction intellectually. So Paul had to speak. To these people, and they were listening to him as he was sharing in the marketplace. You see, the marketplace wasn't like just a mall, it was a place where people, people gathered and where they exchanged ideas. So Paul was taking full advantage of this place, and as he's talking, these Epicureans, these Stoics, the educated men of their day, the ones with the big degrees, the philosophers, they were arguing with Paul, and look at what they say about Paul in this verse, Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, the word babbler is an interesting one in the original language. It pictures a chicken who goes along and picks up a seed here and there. And what it meant was this, that Paul picked up a few ideas from here, a few ideas from there, and he brought them together into a conglomeration of beliefs, and his belief system was nonsense, because it was just a collection of ideas gathered and picked randomly, There was no logic to his system. Isn't it amazing how intellectuals will often draw the parameters for what is reasonable and what is not? Anything that they believe is perfectly reasonable. Anything that they disbelieve is illogical. And so they stack the deck in their favor, and as a result, go to share anything that is outside their wheelhouse, and you are immediately a fool. This is the way they approached Paul. He was a babbler. And then others really didn't understand because it goes on to say, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, the idea is they got from what Paul was saying that Jesus is God, but they're still thinking within their system of thought. You see, they don't see one God, they see many gods, and so what they're saying is, oh, he's coming along and he's adding a new God to our pantheon, this God that he's talking about who's Jesus. And you know, that is a struggle that many missionaries have as they carry to gospel, the gospel to, to areas that have polytheism, the, the worship of many gods. As a matter of fact, something that missionaries in India had to be very careful of was this. As they shared Jesus, the Hindu would hear that Jesus is, a god, and they would say, great, we have two million. What's two million and one? We'll add him to our list. The idea of exclusivity was beyond them. They couldn't grasp that concept initially. So here is Paul. He's sharing the gospel, and they're saying, yeah, I guess he's advocating some foreign gods, but it's a lot of babble if you ask me. So here's Paul's dilemma. Facing these thought processes, facing these worldviews, he had to share the gospel. And even when Paul was sharing the gospel, they misconstrued it. Because look at what the last sentence of that 18th verse says. After they call him a badbler, after they mention that he's advocating these foreign gods, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was preaching the right message but their worldview put them in a place to where they weren't able to pick up what Paul was putting down. They were confused by what was being said. So the story continues. As we come to the 19th verse, we find that these philosophers decide to take them into their environment. The marketplace could have been viewed as common ground, But now Paul was about to step outside the marketplace and to go into the lecture hall. That's what the Areopagus was. It was a place where ideas were discussed, but on an academic level, and these philosophers were the arbitrators, kind of stacked the deck in their favor, didn't it? And it's unclear as to whether the exchange that Paul has with these philosophers at the Areopagus was a trial or whether it was a dialogue, but he was going into their place to talk. And you know, again, that's something that I can relate to. When I was a freshman in a secular university, and by the way, I've said this often, forgive me for being redundant, but... The university is the only place I know where parents spend about $30,000 a year to have the school unteach everything they've tried to teach for 18 years, right? So here I am, freshman, walking into a Bible and religion class that was neither biblical nor religious. And as I'm sitting there, this professor, who looked very much like the prof in Ferris uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he, he gets up and he says, the educated man doesn't accept the Bible as true. So, he shot up my hand. And I said, are you telling me that Harvard and Princeton, founded by Christians, that these were the uneducated men of their day, Are you telling me that people who go and get their earned doctorates in theology are uneducated men? I said, isn't that rather short-sighted on your part? And he told me to sit down and shut up. (laughs) We need to understand that Paul is talking to these intellectuals in their place, but he does so boldly. He is sharing with them the truth of the gospel. And he's going to continue to share with them whether they receive what he has to say or not. And listen, that's where our boldness needs to come in. We share the truth of God. And what somebody does with what we share is up to them. Our responsibility? Share the truth of God. Perhaps Paul had these in mind as he wrote to the Corinthians Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, when you look at some of the philosophies and ideas that have gone throughout time, and we look at some of the archaic ideas that have been presented in centuries and millennia of the past, what do we find? So many of those ideas turn out to just be laughable, right? as they face time, we find that they're crazy. The scientific ideas that have been out there, we look at them, and some of the scientific ideas of a 1,000 years ago are crazy when we look at them. God looks at the wisdom of the world, and he proves them wrong, and he makes them foolish in time. Paul brings this out. But then it goes on to say, for since the wisdom of the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. When you share the gospel, there are going to be some people who think it's utter foolishness. Even today. You're going to hear what you say and say, you superstitious bonehead. Why should I listen to anything that you have to say? And, and that's part of it. You're going to face that. We still share the gospel. And what they do with it is on them. Then the scripture goes on to say this. Since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a miraculous sign. Greeks look for wisdom but look at this. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's word will reach some. So we bring it and share it and leave the results with God. By the way, look at verse 21. I love this side comment that Luke makes, this per- parenthetical thought about what he was encountering as he's talking to these people. Some of the people were rejecting it and just saying, it's, it's crazy, we're, we're, we're automatically going to reject this out of hand. And then some of them were saying, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, we want to know what they mean, so they were interested in hearing more. And then look at Luke's comment in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Again, doesn't that sound like many in our society? They jump from idea to idea. And as you share the gospel, there are going to be some who will sneer at you. There are going to be some who will say, hey, you're presenting a new teaching and and I want to hear more. And then there are going to be some who will respond. We live in a world that discusses ideas because they're seeking to find something out there more than what they have. And we have the answer. We have the truth that we can share. So what does Paul do? He begins to elaborate with them on who God is and how we can know him. Now, Paul has already shared the gospel. He's already shared that Jesus lived and died and rose again. But now he's going to share with them even more. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Do you notice the gracious tone that Paul takes with those who philosophically differ with him and spiritually differ with him. Listen, if you walk in and say, you dirty, rotten pagan, listen up. You're not going to get very far, right? So what did Paul do? Paul recognized that there was a religious hunger on their part, And he used that as a bridge to share with them. We need to be gracious in the way that we share the gospel. We share it unapologetically. We share it in all of its truth, but we share it with a heart of graciousness and kindness and mercy. And this is what Paul was doing. And he says, I see that you are very religious. Now, the term religious, it could mean someone who was devoted to religious things, or it could mean someone who was superstitious. He used a very ambiguous term, but then he goes on and he says this in verse 23, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what we find as Paul is walking around the city is this. He is noticing that they are people who want to hear the gospel, perhaps, just don't know it yet, who are looking for some sort of religious answer and they don't even understand the question yet. And what he did was he looked at their society and he said, what can I notice from the people around me that I can use as a bridge to the gospel. What this is saying to me is evangelists should be students of the culture. We need to know the culture in which we live. We as Christians tend to bury our heads in the sand, stay away from the rest of the culture, never look into it, never understand what they're about, and we can't communicate in a way that seems relevant or understandable to them. Paul said this to the Corinthians, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by any way possible, I might save some. Now, here Paul is not saying be a compromiser. But what he is saying is this. Study the culture, understand your audience, Seek to bring God's truth to them in a relevant way. We never compromise who we are in Christ. We never compromise the message. But in the areas where we can bend, we bend that we might reach some. Never sinning, never stepping outside God's moral will, but also not following a legalistic standard that would keep us from interacting with the lost. That's the message that we find in this text. So that's what Paul did. And so Paul's looking around the culture and he sees this altar. And inscribed on this altar is, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. As people in Athens were looking at the Pantheon, they were nervous. We've got all of these gods. We have Zeus, we have Hera, we have... Apollos, we have all of these gods, but maybe we missed one. So just in case we missed one, we have an altar to this unknown God. And brilliantly, look at what Paul does. Paul is looking at this culture, and he says... In that 23rd verse, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, and then look at what he does. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. What he says is this, this God that you say that you don't know and can't know, I'm going to tell you who he is. So he took their culture, was a student of what was going on, and used it as a bridge to bring in the gospel. And we need to take a lesson from this approach. We need to understand the importance of doing that same thing. And you know, there are many in our culture who have an unknown God. As a matter of fact, the word that is translated unknown is a word that we get our word agnostic from. It's a word that communicates the idea that they don't know whether there's a God or not that would occupy their worship in this altar. So what we need to understand is this, there are people in our culture who believe that God can't be known, but we have the words of life that share how they can. And that's what Paul begins to build on in his interaction with these people. So look at what he does. He begins to extol God as the one true God. First, he establishes God can be known. That's the important part of his message to begin with. And then he starts to say, now, who is it that we know? Who is God? So let's look at how he describes God to these people. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Point number one that he wants people to understand is there is one true God, and you can know him. He is the God who made everything in the world. Now, I know that most of you have friends who are evolutionists, and the moment you say that he is the God who made everything in the world, their hand's going to go up in rejection and just say, okay, we go no further. I can't accept that. Listen. Listen. You can still share who God is. You let the Holy Spirit do the work of working on their heart. If you're not strong enough in your apologetics to share with them some concerns about evolution, there are ample books available that you can say, if you're really interested, read this. And you can share with them the truth that God is the creator. But more than that, it goes on to say that he is unique in his sovereignty He is the Lord of heaven and earth. What Paul wanted his audience to know is there is only one God. When you read many of the Greek accounts of the gods, one God was fighting another God. It was like a chess match going on on Olympus, and they were fighting against one another, and they were basically advanced human beings with all of the hang-ups and the problems of us people. Why? Because people had made gods in their image rather than God creating them in his. So here are these arguments, these exchanges of ideas, and Paul brings it right to the table, and he says, look, the God that I worship is the Lord, that is the sovereign one, the one who is in control over heaven and earth, and more than that, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. You know, many non-Christians get the impression that as we come into our churches, these are temples, and we come in here and we do what people do in temples if they're Hindus or Buddhists or anybody else. And they see churches and temples as pretty much synonymous. And what we need to do is live Christ outside the church so that they can see the truth of who God is and understand that God doesn't inhabit temples. God isn't just here at this church or whatever church is meeting this morning. God is in the lives and the hearts of people every day. He doesn't need us. We need him. And that's where man has gotten confused. Paul said this to the Romans, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, this is speaking of mankind. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. What did man do? Man made idols that they could worship that they felt that they could correspond with. These were the things that I could see and handle and taste and touch, and I can see them all around me. And these are the gods that I'll worship. It was the created creating a creator. But Paul says it's the opposite. Creator made us, and we're to worship Him. The idea that God is bound by these temples and by these things made by human hands was a big part of the Greek system of thought. And I found that it's creeping into people's thought processes even today. When I was a pastor in Colorado, we decided, hey, we're going to a play on Noah. We felt, hey, that'll be safe. It's community theater. But uh, as a staff, all of the pastors are going to this play, Noah. We walked out at intermission. Because what was happening was Noah was shaking his fist at God in this play and was saying, if you don't cut it out with this flood of jazz, we're never going to worship you again, and then where will you be? Ridiculous. I saw a similar theme. I used to be a Star Trek buff. And in one of the last Star Trek movies that uh, was in a series of six, they had the Starship Enterprise go to the planet where God lived. And very much the same theme. If you don't cut it out with all this austerity stuff, we're not going to recognize you anymore. And you'll lose your power and your strength over us. Listen, it doesn't matter how people view God. God is God. And he doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us, but he loves us. What a beautiful picture that is of the creator with his creation. That's the God that we need to introduce people to so that they can know him. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all life and breath and everything else. God, again, doesn't need us, loves us intensely, but certainly doesn't need us. And he is the source of life. God made us, and he allows us the very breath that we breathe. That's the point that Paul wanted to make to these people. God doesn't need you, you need Him. So quit reversing things and understand who God is. Then we come to verse 26. In verse 26, Paul begins to explain that God created us to know Him. And I find this to be a fascinating part of the passage. Verse 26 says, From one man He made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. Now, probably the Stoics heard this and said, yeah, God is completely deterministic. He sets everything in place. Man has no responsibility because God's already made it, right? But then (coughs) we go to verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him. Now, verse 26, God is deterministic. Verse 27, man is to respond to God and seek him. And you know, this is an exchange. I, I know Wayne shared this in the Sunday school class this morning and heard good things on it, Wayne. But you know, this is, this is a, a perennial dilemma. God is sovereign and controlled, but man has a free will with which to respond. Where do the two fit together? And let me tell you something. When you find out, let me know. Because I've been studying this for 45 years, and I still see both taught in Scripture. Right beside the fact that God determines the places and sets them in place, he did this that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Paul is extending the invitation for these Athenians to know God. And he's saying, I'm calling on a decision from you. This God that I've described, who is the creator of the world, who gives you your life and your breath, this same God is there extending an invitation to you, wanting you to respond to him, wanting you to reach out and take hold of him. And he's not far from us. I think that's one of the most important things that Paul communicates to these philosophers. God isn't some distant deity that's created the world, set it in motion, and said, I hope everything works out, I'm stepping back. God was close to them, wanted a relationship with them, and they needed to make a decision. Then look what he does at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Look, whether you recognize God is there or not, he is. That's what Paul is saying. And then he builds a bridge by quoting one of their own secular prophets. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, studying the culture, understanding what he could use to build that bridge. Paul does it. And so that brings him to the closing part of his message. Everyone should repent. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Listen, when have you ever seen an idol produce anything? The idols are produced. They do not produce. You get that? Somebody made them, they made nothing. So, Paul's point is this. We came from somewhere, but not from these. He wanted that to be driven home. So then in verse 30, he goes on to say, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, when it says that God... Overlook such ignorance. It's not saying that God gives a pass on the sin of idolatry. Read the Old Testament. (laughs) He does not give a pass. What it is saying is this. God in His mercy has allowed you to exist and to function in this way. But now you have been presented with the truth. And you have a decision to make. What will you do with the truth of Jesus? You need to respond. You need to make a decision about who God is, and who you are in relation to him. Stop just bantering back and forth with these philosophical ideas. Come to terms with what I've shared. And if you find what I have shared to be true, then that brings about a response on your part, and that is to repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? The word means to change your mind. And so what Paul is saying is stop Pursuing, knowing God through your philosophy and logic and your idolatry and all of these things that have moved you away from God and instead turn from these things to God and accept Him for who He is. That's the idea. That's the repentance that Paul is calling for. Trust Christ. His death and his resurrection as your hope of eternal life, and allow God to transform you and change you and make you into the kind of people that he wants you to be. That's the message that Paul is giving them. Look at verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Bottom line? You have a responsibility. You can embrace Christ as your Savior or face Him as your judge. That's the dilemma that Paul lays before them. And the proof that Jesus will be judge of all mankind is His conquering of death. And now He offers them a way for in Jesus to escape death and judgment as well. So what happened? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that point, Paul left the council. So some of them were, I'm rejecting this out of hand. This does not match up with anything that I've learned in my philosophical circles. I'm not even going to listen, you know, la, 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 fingers in the ears. not going to hear what you have to say. And you're going to meet people like that. They're going to sneer at you, and they're going to say, are you crazy? Give me a break. You can't control that. It's the next group that I find interesting. We want to hear more on this subject. Now, you will find people who will consider and listen and think about who God is and what they should do in light of that. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who have heard the gospel. You're considering it. You're thinking about it. You haven't come to the place to where you've fully embraced it. But you want to hear more. You're welcome here. We want you to come and we want you to hear more. And if you want to engage in a conversation, I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you more. So I invite you to do that. But then there was a final group. And look at this. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, A member of the Areopagus and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now, did you see where Dionysius was from? A member of the Areopagus. He was an intellectual. He was a philosopher. He heard. He listened. He responded. Let me encourage you this morning. If you've heard nothing else from this message, hear this. Step outside your comfort zone to share the gospel. Share with those who will reject what you have to say out of hand, but let them make that decision, not you. And I think that's the important thing that we learn from Paul in this text. Paul could have looked and said, they are hopeless. That bunch of intellectual windbags, they're not going to hear what I have to say, so I'm not even going to bother. You ever felt that way about somebody? Don't make the decision for them. Share the gospel. Let the Spirit of God do his work in their hearts. He's the one that changes lives, not you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the challenge.